Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's biggest news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. Joining us this week are New Scientist reporters Graham Lawton and Lael Liverpool. Hello. Hey. Hello. Coming up on the show, we're hearing about what President Biden has already achieved. We discuss genome sequencing and the massive diversity gap in the world's DNA databases. And we got some big news from the Cretaceous. That's 100 million years ago, but it's still new. <laughs> yeah. We've also got a weird story that turns around what we thought we knew about why water is so essential for life. Yep, uh, but before we get into it, we've got to tell you two things. One, we've got a new podcast called Escape Pod. It's about things that will distract and inspire you and get you away from any grim things that might be happening in the world. Yeah, New Scientist Escape Pod is available now at all the usual podcast places. And the other thing is that there is still a special January offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get New Scientist for half price for 12 weeks. Yep, 12 weeks for half price is a total bargain. Go to newscientist.com slash pod12 to find out more and subscribe. And you get all the benefits of the premium content in the mag, plus access to all the treasures of the archive. newscientist.com slash pod12. But first we start with coronavirus. So we've been in lockdown for a couple of weeks now in the UK, but the latest study that's just come out on Thursday uh, shows that sadly things are not getting better and actually getting they're getting worse. So there's um, 142,000 swab tests done in the latest REACT study that are sent out, these swab tests sent out in January, um, and they've shown that infections are not going down. In some places, they're still going up, and we've had deaths going up daily too. Uh, in the UK on Wednesday, there were 1,820 deaths from coronavirus. Worldwide, more than 2,060,000 deaths and almost 100 million infections. Graham, you've been looking at the role of the new variants in this. What's going on? Well, in a word, evolution. I mean, it's easy to think of this virus as a malign foe that has got it in for us, but actually it's just doing what comes naturally to viruses, which is to mutate. Now, it mutates pretty slowly for a virus, but with this combination of time and ever-increasing transmission events between people means that the mutations are now stacking up. Now, most of the mutations will be harmful to the virus or make no difference either way, but a few will just so happen to give the virus carrying that mutation a slight edge, and that's what we're seeing now. 
so far we've seen four or maybe five, it might even be six now, it's hard to keep track of, uh, mutants that are spreading very quickly. So in evolutionary terms, they're outcompeting the original virus by beating it in the race to infect new victims. Are they something we really need to worry about? Well, yes and no. Um, So up to now, the new variants don't appear to cause worse illness and they don't appear to be more deadly. And that's the good news. But what they are is more transmissible. So the one that was identified in the UK, for example, is about 50% more transmissible than the original virus. So people who've got that virus will infect more people. And that famous R number then goes up. And that means getting R below one, which is obviously what we need to do to get the outbreak back under control, is even more difficult. And of course, the more people who catch the virus, the more people die. So more transmissible does actually mean more deadly at a population level. And what about the vaccines? Will they still protect against these new variants? Yeah, we think so. Pfizer has said that its vaccine is still effective against these mutants. And even if the vaccines are a little bit less effective, they'll still be really good vaccines. So we've got like 90% effectiveness and a small drop on that is still a very effective vaccine in the grand scheme of things. So can we feel confident we're in the clear? No, uh, not entirely. Uh, I mean, the the fear is that the virus is going to carry on mutating. It just that's just what happens. Uh, And the fear is that further mutations will render the vaccines a lot less effective or actually ineffective. And it's not just vaccines that we need to worry about. So therapies and even naturally acquired immunity might be compromised. So we might end up and this is a, a big might with mass reinfection and no effective medicines. And ironically, the likelihood of such, they're called escape mutations. The the likelihood of them emerging increases as we put pressure on the virus with vaccines and drugs and with increased levels of naturally acquired immunity. So up to now, the virus has kind of been, uh, been given a free pass. It's kind of circulating largely unimpeded in a very large and immunologically naive population. But as we throw up more and more barriers to infection, the virus will mutate to overcome them. What can we do about that? Well, again, in a word, surveillance. Uh, We really need to be on the lookout for unusual events. So like lots of immunized or recovered people falling ill. And then what we need to do is quickly sequence lots and lots of viral genomes to look for dangerous new mutants. And I think that those of us in the UK can be pretty confident this is one area of the COVID response in which the UK is genuinely world class. You know, the highly transmissible variant that was identified in Kent was discovered through surveillance. It was discovered because, you know, while lockdown measures were flattening the curve elsewhere in the country, they weren't working in Kent. And so the viral sequencing people sequenced viruses from Kent and found this variant that appears to be more transmissible. So those monitoring and early warning systems are in place and they're being strengthened all the time and they will be just as important as the vaccine in getting us to the other side. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the magazine this week that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, this is the weird water story I mentioned in the intro, right? Yeah, this is a story from reporter Mike Marshall about water and its role in life. So, as you know, water is considered essential for life because it's the medium where so many reactions take place. So it's called the universal solvent because so much dissolves in it, enzymes can do things in it, DNA... Uh, it's a great thing to have as the basis for life. But there's a but coming, right? Oh, well, yeah. So some researchers <laughs> have looked at it the other way around and found that water itself is a reactive participant in biochemistry. 
Okay, so that means water isn't just the sort of the vessel for reactions, the medium in which they take place, but it is a, a critical part of the reactions themselves. Yeah, that's what they're saying. So they to say this, they've they've dredged a database um, of six thousand five hundred known biochemical reactions, and they found that in those reactions, a molecule of water is either made or destroyed in at least forty percent of them. But given that water is the most common molecule in our bodies, I think we're like. 60% water. Is it that surprising that um, that it is actively involved in all these reactions? Yeah, that's right. I mean, perhaps not that surprising, but um, it, I guess it's underappreciated. And the, the scientists, at least, they were surprised by those numbers. And they looked at reactions in, in E. coli, in the bacterium, and found that 99.4% of the molecules produced in the life cycle of E. coli are water. So the point, I guess the point is that organic molecules started forming randomly on the early Earth. And when they did that, they they just encountered water in vast quantities in the seas and on land. And that, that sheer quantity of water meant that it exerted a huge influence on which chemicals survived and became part of life and which didn't. So it's a sort of profound but subtle point there. Yeah, I'm trying to do subtlety. <laughs> it's hard for me. Uh, but the, I guess the interesting thing is that now we can appreciate that as well as needing to dissolve in water, the, the chemicals of life have to be able to react with it. Um, and that's how they were selected. So it's not just the universal solvent, but also the universal reactant. So it has a dual role in selecting the molecules of life. So what's the sci-fi link here? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, little, <laughs> it's a bit stretched this week because it's not so much about the water's role in the origin of life as, uh, you know, I've just gone for something that's about the oddness of water. And I have to say, Mike uh, provided these links for me. Uh, there's a couple of e episodes of Star Trek that are about a, a weird form of water that infects the crew and it causes loss of inhibitions. Uh, and they, basically, they get naked. <laughs> um, uh, it's called Naked Time and uh, they did it in the Next Generation series as well another episode called Naked Now so they, they like getting their kit off Now it's time for a short break to tell you about a free newsletter we're launching Our news editor Penny Sarchet is here to tell us what it's about so Wild Wildlife will be about all multicellular life on Earth. So that's animals, plants, fungi, uh, you name it. There's lots of um, other miscellaneous categories. And every month I'll be exploring the latest scientific discoveries about the world's most interesting species, as well as also putting together a kind of roundup or, or my favourite picks of, of the month's uh, most interesting news, uh, sightings out in the wild, strange observations, just kind of a, a smorgasbord of delights there, really. Excellent. I can't wait. Uh, what can we expect for the first one? So the first one, I've actually got uh, two exclusive stories that you won't read anywhere else. Um, there's one about a surprisingly clever fish. And the second is uh, an interesting question about giraffes, how they manage to time their breeding um, to be at the right time of year, given that they're fertile all, all year round. So um, I was quite intrigued by how they, they managed to do that. And then on top of that, I'm also looking at a recent flurry of newly described species. So that's some plants, animals and fungi. And uh, like I say, 
my picks of, of what's been going on and, and what's fun to find out about right now. So if you want to read all of that and it's free, then sign up by the 25th of January um, to make sure you get the first one. And uh, you can do that at newscientist.com slash wildwildlife. Sounds great. Really looking forward to it. That address to sign up again for free is newscientist.com slash wildwildlife. And if you'd like to get involved, Penny would love to hear about the wildlife you've been seeing and discovering. So do get in touch with her at wildwildlife at newscientist.com. Now, Rowan, you've got some dino news. Yeah, it's it's been a good week for dinosaurs. And I'm finding myself drawn to these stories happening tens of millions of years ago for some reason. <laughs> First, uh, we have what could be the biggest land dinosaur ever found. And it could be the biggest land animal of all time. Anyone want to guess how long it would be if you scale it with the number of elephants put in a line? <laughs> Ten <laughs> elephants. Ten. Oh, <laughs> gone too far. No, it's uh, it's about it's at least seven elephants. They think this new dinosaur is um, at least as big as one called Patagotitan, which was seven elephants long or 35 metres long. And what's the evidence for this new dinosaur? Well, so far they found 24 vertebrae and some pelvis bones that they've dug up in Argentina, uh, which seem to belong to a new kind of titanosaur. Um, And as the name suggests, there are some of the late surviving massive sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs like Diplodocus. And this one's about 98 million years old. Okay, so so far we found 24 vertebrae. So we need a bit more evidence before we can definitely crown it the biggest ever. Yeah, they're being cautious, um, but they're very excited. uh, And certainly it's among the largest animals ever discovered. And it's also great because it shows something about the complexity of the Cretaceous ecosystem. So you have these gigantic animals that also lived alongside much smaller sauropods. So, you you know, you can imagine this real diversity of of, uh, herbivorous dinosaurs, each occupying a, a distinct ecological niche. A bit like we see lots of different kind of herbivores in, in jungles today still. Yeah, exactly. But that's not the only dino action this week, am I right? No, uh, save <laughs> best to last. Uh, this is um, scientists at the University of Bristol who've reconstructed dinosaur genitalia. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is another Cretaceous dinosaur. This time it's from China. Um, and it's really, it's one of these incredibly well-preserved fossils. They say it looked like like roadkill, fossil roadkill, uh, which is quite unpleasant. It's very graphic. Yeah, yeah, it is horrible. But um, (laughs) it it shows all the skin has been incredibly well fossilised, including the cloaca. And remind us again what a cloaca is. So in birds, that's the bit where uh, eggs come out, uh, also the bit where they poo and wee out of and and where they mate through. It's the Latin word for sewer. (laughs) How lovely. (laughs) So uh, it's the all-purpose opening. And so, yeah, this animal is about a metre long and apparently its cloaca is more like that of a crocodile than a bird because it's covered by flaps of skin. Now, I know because I've read in New Scientist that some birds also have penises, is that right? They they do. Uh, and some crocodiles do as well. Um, and the paleontologists think that this dinosaur might have had one. Uh, are they also sticking their necks out here and saying they think the, the skin flaps should, could have had hidden musk glands that have produced uh, sexually irresistible scents? And what does seem to be more likely is that there appears to be melanin in the outer skin of the cloaca, suggesting that it was pigmented. So something like a a target sign. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> 
come and sniff here or look here. Um, like a baboon, like baboons, you know, have these really bright coloured bottoms. The idea is that this combination of scent glands and bright colours might have made it uh, an interesting place for other dinosaurs to inspect, like dogs inspecting the bottoms of other dogs. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really sure what to say to this um, development other than how incredible it is what paleontologists are able to find these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always used to be said that behaviour doesn't fossilise. But, you know, they, they're managing to piece together behaviour from morphology like this. And, you know, I'm not sure about the scent gland stuff, though, because I don't think birds sniff each other's cloacas. Seems more like a mammalian thing. So mammalian. Go mammals. And now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom, where we discuss some of the latest news to do with climate change and decide how full or empty we think the glass is looking. Uh, This week, let's dig a little into President Biden's plans for the first few days and weeks as they relate to climate. Yes. So this week, uh, President Biden was sworn in and also Kamala Harris as the first ever woman vice president of the United States. So it's been a historic week. And President Biden has been planning lots of climate action ahead of time, including already signing back up to the Paris Climate Accord and cancelling the Keystone XL oil pipeline permit. So both of those things are already done. And the UN have welcomed the, that decision already to come back into Paris. Biden is also going to unveil a $2 trillion clean energy package to get the US to carbon-free electricity by 2035. Um, and he's doing things like forcing federal agencies to calculate the costs of carbon emissions that the emissions impose upon society, which is a step towards getting rid of the subsidies that um, have been bailing out fossil fuel for so long. So uh, there's also a real sort of Avengers Assemble moment going on at the White House. He's got this crack team together, which are going to be charged with enacting the most ambitious climate plan in US history. Uh, We mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that John Kerry was part of the cabinet. He's the climate czar. Uh, He's going to have a seat on the National Security Council, and that's the first time it's had an official dedicated to climate. And another person we haven't mentioned yet is Gina McCarthy. Uh, She's the new National Climate Advisor and ran the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. And until just now, she's been head of the Natural Resources Defence Council. I was listening to an interview with her, and she's really uh, engaging, inspiring leader. So it's fantastic to have her on board. And uh, speaking of the EPA, the new administrator is Michael Regan, who's the first black man to run the EPA and will be in charge of the Biden Environmental Justice Plan, looking at how climate change disproportionately affects communities of color and also in charge of undoing as much as possible of the environmental damage that's been done uh, by the Trump administration. Um, There's a fantastic team. And another person worth mentioning is Congresswoman Deb Holland, who is the new Secretary of the Interior. She's the first ever Native American cabinet secretary and a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. Yeah, this section is not just about climate hope this week. It's it's about hope full stop. It's just really incredible what's going on in contrast to the last four years that we've had. But obviously, it is still a huge task that the Biden team face. They are firm about decarbonizing the electricity sector by 2035 and getting to net zero U.S. carbon emissions by 2050. So it seems like climate hope for sure. Huge hope. Um, And I think it's okay to get carried away a little this week. Uh, And we'll resume normal service next week. Now let's talk about genome sequencing. The sequencing of people's DNA 
which has become a central tool for medical research and it's also been touted as a fundamental part of the personalised medicine revolution. It's helped us um, develop treatments for things like inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and even a range of rare genetic disorders. But the thing is, DNA from people of non-European descent has been largely missing from many DNA databases. And in recent years, geneticists have really been waking up to this problem and trying to tackle it. Lael, you've been looking into this as part of a big piece in this week's magazine. Yeah, so there's a real lack of diversity when it comes to the people whose DNA we're sequencing. And we've known about this for a while. Um, a study in 2019 found that people of European ancestry accounted for 78% of people included in uh, genome-wide association studies or uh, GWAS. So these are genetic studies that look for associations between genes and diseases. Uh, and this is despite the fact that they make up only 16% of the global population. Why is that such a problem to have sort of such a disproportionate concentration of, of people from one particular ancestral group? It's really significant because GWAS studies and other genetic research, as you said, Tiff, uh, earlier, helps us identify crucial connections between genes and disease, which can help us to develop new therapies. Uh, but of course, these treatments may not work for all of us if they're developed based on studies that are failing to fully capture the uh, breadth of human genetic diversity. And data from genetic studies is also increasingly being used as uh, a way of making predictions about a people's risk of disease. But there's evidence that these predictions aren't as accurate among people of non-European descent. Uh, one study found that the accuracy of disease prediction using these types of methods is about twofold lower in populations uh, of Asian descent, for example, compared to European ancestry populations, uh, and about fivefold lower in African descent populations. So genetics is suffering from a real data gap when it comes to whose DNA is being sequenced, and huge swathes of people are being left out of this so-called personalized medicine revolution. So are geneticists trying to fill that gap, trying to, you know, go out and get better samples? Absolutely. And this is really uh, what uh, my feature is about. So uh, a growing number of geneticists are trying to collect more DNA sequences from people from uh, traditionally underrepresented backgrounds. A few examples uh, of large scale research efforts are, for, for instance, the Genome Asia 100K project, which has already uh, sequenced the genomes of nearly 2000 people from 64 countries across Asia. There's also the H3 Africa initiative, which uh, consists of 51 projects led by researchers uh, based in different countries across Africa. Uh, and these include population-based genomic studies of disease. Uh, in the US, the uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, is almost three years into a program called All of Us, uh, which is designed to create a database of genetic information and other health records uh, from more than a million people with diverse an ancestry across the country. Recently, even um, commercial genetic testing companies like 23andMe, uh, they're actively seeking more samples from people uh, of underrepresented backgrounds. It's really encouraging to know that all of these efforts are afoot to kind of close the, the data gap. Are, we, are they starting to sort of yield new insights so far? Yeah, uh, a lot, actually. Uh, we're, we're already starting to see the benefits of these kind of projects, uh, not just uh, for the groups that are being sequenced, but really for all of us. Um, I spoke to Deepti Gurdasani, uh, who's a geneticist at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, she's been leading recent efforts to sequence the genomes of thousands of people in East Africa. As part of a project with researchers in Uganda in 2019, uh, Gurdasani and her team were able to analyze uh, DNA sequence data from more than 6,000 people uh, in 20 25 villages in southwest Uganda. 
uh, and they discovered various gene variants associated with uh, cardiovascular and metabolic disease, uh, including 23 that had never been found before, uh, simply because previous sequencing efforts hadn't been inclusive enough. And there have been some more recent efforts as well, is that right? Yeah, um, in in November last year, uh, a project from uh, the H3 Africa initiative, which I mentioned, they reported the discovery of more than 3 million completely new genetic variants uh, through sequencing of, again, diverse populations from uh, 13 countries in Africa, including people from 50 different uh, ethno-linguistic groups. So yeah, by closing that data gap in our DNA databases, we're really starting to reap the benefits in terms of new genetic discoveries. And I really want to emphasize that sequencing um, people of African descent in particular is is really informative because, of course, all humans originated in Africa. And then those who migrated outwards only took a fraction of that original genetic diversity with them. So including more people of African descent in genetic studies will actually increase the chance that we can identify new associations between genes uh, and traits like disease, uh, which is helpful for all of us. Yeah, when you put it like that, it seems so obvious that, you know, that we didn't do it from the beginning. But it's great that people are finally starting to wake up to the value of the data. Yeah, absolutely. And there's also been uh, a big push to sequence data from smaller, more isolated human populations, uh, including indigenous peoples, on the basis that many of these populations have historically adapted to extreme environments. So, for example, Greenlandic Inuits uh, have relatively low rates of heart disease, uh, even though they've traditionally eaten a diet that's rich in fat. Uh, so biologists have begun studying gene variants within these populations uh, in the hope that that could improve our, our wider understanding of heart health uh, and even inform the development of new treatments. Are there are there any pitfalls um, in our efforts to go and, and, and fill the data gap, uh, reaching out to populations that haven't been included so far? I think that there definitely are. I think it's a, it's a really sensitive area um, and researchers need to tread carefully. So I was discussing this with uh, Keolu Fox at the University of California, San Diego, uh, and he told me he's quite concerned about this sudden rush to sequence genomes from traditionally underrepresented groups. Um, there is, of course, a history of samples uh, and data being taken from marginalized groups and being used without consent uh, for medical research purposes. Um, in the U.S., uh, for instance, in, in the 50s, uh, cancer cells were taken from an African-American woman named Henrietta Lacks uh, and used without consent from her or her family to generate the first immortalized human cell line. So these are cells that can be propagated in the lab indefinitely. Yeah, that became the, the healer cell lines that are all over the world, aren't they now? Yeah, they're, they're literally everywhere. They've been involved in a lot of big, uh, you know, medical advances. I think the polio vaccine. Uh, during my PhD, I used to work with them regularly in the lab. So, yeah, many of the um, geneticists I spoke to uh, agreed that it will be crucial to make sure that uh, efforts to include people from more diverse backgrounds aren't exploitative. Uh, Keolu Fox thinks that the emphasis should really be on having more genetic studies led by people from the groups being studied with efforts made to ensure shared benefit uh, from the research. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us, Lael and Graham. And thanks to all of you for listening. Just before we go, remember, you can get a subscription to New Scientist for 12 weeks at half price. Go to newscientist.com slash pod 12 for more information. And do check out Escape Pod, our new podcast, at all the usual podcast places. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Bye. 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 Bye.
This podcast is produced by Ollie Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.